Welcome to the public rally. As the 2020 election reaches its conclusion, one thing is certain. Politically, America is an angry nation. Regardless of the salient issue, race relations, climate change, coronavirus, the economy, or something else, it is predictably accompanied by some form of anger. Anger in the public discourse is hardly a new phenomenon. But is it driving us to the point that we may no longer be tethered to the nation's shared values, its public morality? To discuss the topic of anger, I'm joined by Indiana University political science professor Stephen Webster. Professor Webster, according to University of Virginia political scientist and founder of Sabato's crystal ball, Larry Sabato, is one of the rising stars in political science. Professor Webster is author of American Rage, How Anger Shapes Our Politics. Professor Stephen Webster, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me. Let's begin sort of framing this historically. Has there ever been a point in American public discourse where anger did not play a role? And if not, why is this moment unique? It's a great question. So, you know, I, I think anger is sort of a, a common thread throughout the history of American politics. And so I, I don't think anger is, is anything that's terribly unique to the contemporary era. I think what is unique about, about the world we're in now is that it's easier to become angry and it's easier to sustain our anger. And so that's led to some, some negative consequences for the political system. So if, framing your last answer, uh, what is, is there a specific role that anger is playing in our current discourse? Yeah, I mean, anger gets people motivated in the political process, right? So that's, that's one thing that it does is it gets us, you know, actually turning out to vote. It gets us donating to candidates. Um, generally, anger is, is seen as an action-oriented emotion. So when people are angry, they want to do something to assuage that anger. And so when we're thinking about anger in terms of politics, that often involves voting, attending marches or rallies or protests. And so I think one of the things that anger does is it, is it gets Americans involved in the political process. Is there a, a culpability here? And I'm thinking, I mean, we, we have the confluence, obviously, of social media, our blogs of choice, our cable news shows of choice. Is there is there a culpability to this particular brand of anger that, ha that makes you concerned? I think so. Um, you know, I, I, I see two real um, distinct sources of our anger. Um, so one, as, as you've alluded to, is the media, the, the sorts of TV shows we watch and the, the websites we go to. Um, we know that, that the media has an incentive to keep viewers angry, right? When you're angry with something, you tend to, to focus on that thing that makes you angry. So if the media can get you aroused, can get you riled up, you're going to keep your eyeballs on the TV screen, which is, is good for their bottom line. One of the ways that the media does this, especially the, the broadcast media, is that they strategically book ideologically extreme guests on their shows. So we know that, you know, whether we're talking about Fox News or MSNBC, the media has a preference for people who are very liberal or very conservative because these people tend to elicit the strongest emotional responses from viewers. We also see a similar sort of dynamic playing out on the Internet. So people can self-select into the you know, websites that they, they read. Um, they can you know, carefully cultivate a Twitter feed that, that tells them only the things that they want to hear. And so we do see the sort of, um, sort of 
perpetuation of these echo chambers that just serve to make us angry. Now, it's not just the media that's making us angry. In fact, politicians themselves are seeking to make Americans angry. And there's a really simple, straightforward reason that politicians are doing this. And it's that our anger aids their electoral pursuits. So when people are angry, they tend to vote loyally for their own party's candidates. So succinctly, an angry voter is a loyal voter. And because politicians are concerned with getting reelected, they're willing to make us angry. So, so to, to your last point, so could we equate this anger that you're referring to similar to maybe the way we feel about negative political advertising that poll after poll shows that most Americans do not like negative advertising, but people continue to do negative ads because they work. And I wonder, is, is our anger sort of related to that phenomenon? I, I think it absolutely is. You know, um, Tom Daschle has this, this famous quote. Uh, he said that, that negative campaigns are the crack cocaine of American politics. Right, so people don't like it, but but you know they they're they're addicted to these negative campaign ads, and that's precisely why so many campaigns quote go negative. And I think you're right to analogize that to our anger. You know, people like to say that it would be so nice if we had this very you know calm civil discourse, but I think people kind of enjoy their anger. You know, I I think I think people really enjoy this this culture that we're in. Um, and that, you know, is, is, is problematic for a host of reasons. Well, you, you, you make it sound, um, I'm an avid baseball fan. Uh, baseball fan first, I'm a San Francisco Giants fan second in that order. But uh, if Clayton Kershaw, who I obviously don't like because he's a Dodger, if Clayton Kershaw suddenly adorned the orange and black, I would like him. So depending on the uniform determines my loyalty. Is our politics like that? I think it is. You know, I'm I'm not a baseball guy, but but I'm I'm very much a football guy, and you know, I I uh, I, I understand your your sort of a conundrum there, and I, I think increasingly, um, people can can view their affiliation as either a Democrat or a Republican, much in the same way that a San Francisco Giants fan views his Giants fandom. Right? We're we're, we're turning out to vote because we want to see our side win. We want to see our side beat the other guys. You know when you sort of watch these politicians speak, um, a lot of times they're doing things just to, to sort of irritate those who disagree with them. Um, so, so part of this is this idea of negative partisanship. I'm just doing things to, to irritate the other side because my own base likes to see that. Um, so, you know, there's this sort of uh, popular culture reference of Republicans doing things to, quote, own the libs. Uh, and, and I think there's, there's some truth to that. Um, there, there really is this aspect of sort of teamsmanship in our politics right now. Uh, but, but when I when I when I hear you uh, say that, I'm, I, doesn't that uh, I guess place America's core values secondary to our own sort of uh, self-determined orthodoxy? It's possible that's happening. Um, you know. I think in, in previous eras of, of American politics, we could see cooperation between Democrats and Republicans. And I think that's in part due to the fact that, that people saw themselves primarily as Americans. And despite their, their ideological or their partisan differences, people in Congress were really there to try to do things to better the country. 
I think increasingly our identities are centered on our partisan identities rather than our identity as, as citizens or as Americans. And so I do think you're right to, to suggest that there's been sort of a, a reorientation of, of what, our, what, what our most primary identity is. And for most people, it's their identity as a Democrat or as a Republican rather than as an American. Um, we talked about history before. I'm, I'm going to pose a hypothetical question to you. How do you respond to someone who says, well, well Professor Webster, what's occurring today in no way could be compared to, say, African-Americans uh, doing slavery or Jim Crow segregation, nor could it be compared to the treatment of German-Americans during the Great War or Japanese-Americans during World War II. How do you respond in the context of the particular anger that you're referring to now? You know, in some ways, it's hard to compare anger across generations. Um, there's obviously been, you know, unfortunately, countless examples of, of racial and social injustices throughout the history of the country. Um, the perhaps most, most primary example is the Civil War itself with, with slavery. Um, so, you know, I, I do think in some senses that the things that make us angry today are, you know, fortunately less consequential. Um, but on the other hand, some of these racial injustices uh, that have been present throughout our past are, are still lingering today, right? I mean, we, we've seen the, the events in Minneapolis with George Floyd, and there's been a lot of anger about this, and, and rightfully so. And so I think, unfortunately, there's been a, a common thread throughout American history of the things that, that actually make us angry. You know, I'm wondering, uh, is the particular ang anger that you're referring to today in some respects, uh, is, do you see it as a euphemism for other emotions? For, for example, my anger camouflages my fear or, or my dislike of the other. I wonder how you saw that, etc. So it's certainly possible. Um, so anger and fear are, are both what we would call negatively valenced emotions. So put another way, they're, they're essentially in the same family, right? They're siblings with one another. And so it is often the case that when you're angry, there's some residual amount of fear there. And when you're anxious or you're afraid of something, there's, there's a residual amount of anger there as well. So I do think you're right that, that there's an aspect of both anger and fear in American politics. Um, I think probably some, some you know, prime candidates for where you would find both of those emotions simultaneously is on issues like immigration. Because right? it can't just be the case that we're angry about people wanting to come to America, but we're also fearful about what these new uh, new people will do to um, the sort of status quo that we have here. So I do think that there is both fear and anger, and I think that's that's a very good point. Well, that the, that particular fear or, 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 or of the unknown of someone like you, know, you just use the border, people coming over. I mean that that fear has its roots in the very genesis of the nation. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it's sort of a ironic thing about, about American politics that we have people who, who demagogue immigration when the, the sort of unifying thing about America is that we're all originally from somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's very strange to see people sort of pull up the ladder in some respects, right? We're, we're all from somewhere else. And so we should be welcoming of, of people who are trying to make a better life. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's quite paradoxical that, that people would elicit so much fear and anger over the issue of immigration. And, uh, and following up on that, um, just, just about the, just about the anger piece, um, 
when I think of, when I think of social media, one of the things that social media allows us to do uh, that previous generations did not have the, the luxury, and I use luxury in quotations, if I can sort of hide in anonymity, I can hide in my silo, I can have friends who only see it the way I see it, so then my anger becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and I think social media, doesn't social media, I should say, um, makes this form of anger that you're talking about unique as, as opposed to previous forms. I think that's right. Um, you know, human beings are hardwired to avoid things that um, they don't agree with, right? This creates cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is uncomfortable, and, and we don't like being uncomfortable, whether that's physical discomfort or, or mental discomfort. So I do think that's that's part of what's going on here. I think another thing that's you know quite pernicious about social media is that it's sort of a, a rapid fire thing, right? You can retweet something in half a second. Somebody can put a post on Facebook uh, in, in just as amount of time. And so there's there's more opportunities to become angry. And I think these these sorts of anger inducing stimuli come at us faster than in previous years. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Stephen Webster, political scientist at the University, or Indiana University, excuse me. Uh, he's uh, also the author of American Rage, How Anger Shapes Our Politics. Professor Webster, based on the polling I've seen, anger in the, in the 2020 election appears to be propelling voter turnout. You sort of alluded to this earlier, but talk to me about you have, let's say you have this outstanding voter turnout, but then the election's over, and then you have to govern. Um, how does that play out if, if, if anger, which could lead to norm erosion, is part of the country's values? Yeah, well, so it, it does not portend well for uh, effective governance. Um, so in addition to increasing turnout, one of the things that anger does is it reduces Americans' commitment to a few really important uh, norms that have, have long governed political competition in this country. So one thing that my work shows is that when people are angry, they tend to believe that those who disagree with them politically are less intelligent than they are. They're more likely to believe that people who disagree with them about politics are a threat to the country's well-being. And they're more likely to think that those who disagree with them uh, in terms of politics um, are, are really just out there to, to sort of ruin the country. Now, if you believe that about supporters of the opposing political party, then you're not going to want your party's elected officials to engage in any sort of bipartisan cooperation. Most of the time when things get done in this country, it's, it's through some sort of bipartisan compromise. And so really what we have here is sort of the mass public fueled by anger holding their elected officials' feet to the fire and saying, don't compromise with the other party. And the end result of that has been a sort of hollowing out of our legislative institutions. And this is one of the primary reasons that we see very little being done in Congress. You know, earlier you, you talked about um, sort of the uh, uh, behavior of, of, of cable talk shows uh, and that they, they, they get the political extremes uh, but I'm hearing you say that what really beyond orthodoxy, um, what, what sort of unites these two is this sort of this notion of just being strident and certain, which a byproduct of that, in my, my view, would be anti-intellectualism. 
You know, I think there's something to that. Um, so again, something that, that anger causes people to do is sort of shut down the process of rational thinking. Um, when you're angry, you're not really prone to thinking in terms of um, sort of shades of gray or, or any sort of nuance. Everything is black and white. Um, and, and, and so, you know, to the extent that you're not willing to really engage in any form of second guessing or reinterpretation, I do think that could lead to a sort of anti-intellectualism. We also know that, that when people are angry, they tend to rely on simple cues or heuristics when making judgments or evaluations. Now, in the context of American politics, the biggest and most prominent cue by far is our partisan identity. So when people are angry, they're more likely to think of themselves as Republicans or as Democrats. And so this can sort of further, uh, sort of really make us more entrenched in terms of what we believe. And I remember when um, Dan Carter wrote his book about Alabama Governor George Wallace entitled The Politics of Rage. And, and though, uh, again, in my view, it was clear that Wallace has influenced politics going forward, it, the, it still felt at the time, I think it was like around 2000 when the book came out, it still felt at the time that Wallace reflected the outlier. Your book, American Rage, How Anger Shapes Politics, uh, was concerning because you are, what you articulate feels more mainstream, and I wonder how you, how you saw those differences. I think that's right. Um, you know, I, so what's interesting is that anger is not a distinctly American emotion. Um, people in other countries feel anger, and so the question is, 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 is the politics in other countries similar to the politics we have here? And I, I think the reason anger is so mainstream in, in our country and perhaps not so much in others is, is partly due to the nature of the political system here. So, for instance, in other countries, there are more than two viable parties. And those who are very angry might latch on to a third party or a fourth party if we're talking about you know, Germany or France or the United Kingdom. Here, there's, there's only two viable parties. And so if you're angry, you're, you're either going to go to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And so I think just the sort of structural setup of American politics makes it easier for anger to be sort of a, a mainstream emotion. Now, I'm assuming that anger that you're referring also um, erodes specific trust in government institutions. And I would throw in the, the press. But my question, what does governing look like when anger is an influential part of the governing coalition. Yeah, so I, I think one of the, the implications of this, this rise of anger in the mass public is that you know, we're, we're most likely to see the passage of legislation, particularly important legislation that you know, really makes a difference in people's lives. So you know, we're not talking about renaming a post office, but, but something tangible. We're likely to only see that when there is complete control of government by one party. And so I'm talking about not only the House of Representatives and the Senate, but also the White House. Um, absent this, you know, I, I think we're likely to see more paralysis in terms of, of legislation. Interestingly, uh, there, there was a period not too long ago where the Republican Party had complete control of the federal government. They had the House and the Senate and the White House, uh, and they, they couldn't repeal the Affordable Care Act. Um, I think part of that was due to some, some intra-party anger and some intra-party ideological disagreements. 
Um, so even then, it's, it's, it's not a given that things are going to happen. Well, you know, you, you know there, there, there was a time, we, we talked earlier about norm erosion, there was a time, and you sort of alluded to this, that if, that if, if a president, let's say, of one party, um, and the, legis- the, uh, the, the legislative branch was of another party, they could work together and get things done, this notion that you could only get things done if, you have complete control is sort of uh, an anathema to our democratic values. And uh, do, do you have any idea when did that change? So it, it's hard to pinpoint when we became incredibly angry. And, and partly that's because there's lots of things that have developed over time that had made us angry. Um, but, you know, if, if we're trying to think of, of really sort of prominent things that happened in a bipartisan fashion, I think you could go back to some of the things that were passed in the wake of 9-11. So, for instance, the, the Patriot Act had quite a bit of, of support across the aisle. Um, George W. Bush's expansion of the welfare state had some, some bipartisan support, of course. Um, but, you know, it, it's rare that, that we're able to do anything like this. Um, when that does happen, it's largely because some drastic event has occurred that sort of you know, kind of shakes up the etch a sketch and makes us think of ourselves as Americans rather than partisans. So, for instance, 9-11 obviously was this massive, you know, tragic terrorist attack on our country. And so people sort of put the, the national interest ahead of their more narrow partisan interests. Um, now, that's kind of concerning because it suggests that we can really only come together when, when bad things happen. And no one, of course, would, would, would wish something like that upon our country or, or any country um, and so, so it, I think, kind of suggests something somewhat depressing about the state of American politics is that we're not really able to come together and, and, and do anything of, of real consequence. Well, I, I, th- I think it's safe to say that the, the, the current pandemic is the dominant story of, of, the, 20, of the 21st century. And um, there seems to be difficulty, as you just stated, about coming together and getting, getting something done. Uh, to help those who are currently suffering. You know what's what's very strange about this um, is so I think the the coronavirus pandemic is a, a, a prime example of how Democrats and Republicans can look at the same thing and come away with very different interpretations of it. Um, so we'll take for instance the the idea of wearing masks. Right now, I think probably just about every public health official and epidemiologist will tell you that. Wearing a mask is, is one of the very best things you can do to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. We know, though, that the single biggest predictor of whether one wears a mask is their partisanship, right? So if you're a Republican, you're much less likely to wear a mask than if you're a Democrat. And that's because there have been elected officials in the Republican Party casting doubt about the efficacy of wearing a mask. And so I think this is indicative not only of partisans' ability to view the same world through a very different lens, but also of our ability to, to sort of rely on what our leaders tell us. Right? You're seeing very different messaging about um, how to protect yourself from coronavirus, from, from Democratic elites and from Republican elites. And, and, and that sort of goes back to uh, one of your previous points, that it, that begins with campaigning. If, if I campaign in a strident way and and you're no, you're not just my enemy. I mean, you you are um, below Genghis Khan. Then 
I look hypocritical if then if I want to work with you uh, on Capitol yeah. Hill to get something done. That's absolutely right. I mean, there, there's it's it's sort of a uh, a case of a vicious cycle, right? So so when Americans are angry and they're they're very polarized in terms of their beliefs with politics, that creates little to no incentive for political elites, elected officials, to actually work with each other. At the same time, when when Americans see elected officials not doing anything to sort of reach across the aisle and and really you know make progress on on key issues. That only reinforces our anger, and so it really is a vicious cycle of anger and legislative paralysis um, that you know I think we would do well to break out of. Um, but I'm not optimistic that we're actually going to be able to do that. And so, so, sort of a circular problem is in that poll after poll, people um, show the displeasure of of let's say the, the the legislative branch, but at the same time, their particular representatives okay. Yeah, so this this is a, a classic argument in political science is that um, people generally don't like Congress, but they like their member of Congress. And so one of the, the tactics that, that congressmen use when they're running for re-election is to kind of campaign against Congress as an institution. Um, so that's that's certainly a, a tactic that's, that has long existed for politicians. I've always been fascinated about, about that, to apply for a job that you... Detest it, it. Just you know, it just seemed paradoxical to me. Why would you want a job that you detest? I hate Washington, you know, but I want this job. It just I never under I never understood that kind of campaigning. But people do it all the time. I, that's that's a, that's a great question. I don't have an answer for you, but uh, <laughs> I mean, you're you're absolutely right. It, it's pretty strange. Um, stay on that thread though. It, it, doesn't it uh, also entrench? hypocrisy is an unstated value in our public discourse. And, and I'm specifically referencing, not, 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 not from political context, but from the context of this conversation, I'm thinking about uh, the, the way the Republican Senate has fast-tracked um, the, the Supreme Court hearings for um, Amy Coney Barrett. Um, I can't imagine a single Republican supporting the process if it were reversed. So we, don't we eventually evolve, devolve into sort of this Machiavellian notion whereby the ends justify the means? And that's sort of the the stated value part of our public, current public discourse and anger. Uh, yes. Um, I, I think that's sort of a, a consequence of, of what I said earlier about how anger causes us to, to be less committed to, to some of these norms that have long underpinned American politics. You know, I, I think one of the things that our anger and sort of the, the, the Trump era more broadly has revealed is that a lot of what happens in Washington was due to norms. Uh, lots of things that, that our government has done for a long time and that our political leaders have done have not been codified rules, but it's just been people doing things because that's the way that they've been done. And so I think this sort of refusal to, to you know, listen to one president's nominee for the Supreme Court and then to fast track another um, is, is perhaps one of the more egregious examples of this, this anger-fueled norm violation in American politics. Well, and we know politics is cyclical, so um, this is not a prediction, but, but if, if uh, Vice President Joe Biden wins um, that, and, this, and this confirmation goes through, chances are there will be some sort of retaliatory measure 
whether it's enacting term limits or ex expanding the court. I never thought the court packing would, would, would have an air of legitimacy, but, but, now it, but now it does. And so you, don't you just further and further go down the road to so what the country initially signed up for is no longer recognizable? I think there's a real risk that that's correct. Um, you know, I, I, I think Joe Biden is, has been sort of, you know, noncommittal about his views on court packing. And I think part of that is because Joe Biden is, is more of an institutionalist than, than other people. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think he recognizes that that would be a bit of a nuclear option. Right? There's a reason that, that no one has seriously discussed this since FDR, um, because it, it's a drastic change to the structure of our government. Um, and it's, it's kind of a case that if you were to do something like that, then, you know, the toothpaste is out of the tube. So, so what other institutions do you want to reform? Uh, and I, I think there's a, there's a real sense of hesitation about doing something that drastic. No, no, no you, you, I, I certainly um, take your point. I would just imagine, let's say at the end of the month, um, again, not a prediction, but let's just say at the end of the month, that the Affordable Care Act, which at one time was the scourge of politics, is now the third rail, and it's, it's gotten a lot of support from Americans, that gets struck down. Um, then it comes back to fast-tracking you know, this hearing. I could, see so, I could see that being a scenario where you would, may have some retaliatory uh, action, even against your better judgment, if you are an institutionalist. I think that's right. I think there there is a real incentive to sort of strike back um, in, in terms of sort of, you know, trying to undo something that the other party did or, or you know, do something else that counteracts that. Um, I've always kind of thought of um, American politics as, as a bit of an inverse pendulum. So if you think of a pendulum, you know, it'll swing back and forth wildly, but eventually it'll settle down and, and come to rest in the middle. I think American politics is a pendulum with increasingly wild swings. Uh, so if that's the case, then then you could be right that that you know when Democrats inevitably you know are are back in control, whether that's you know in a couple months or a couple years, um, they they might do something that perhaps is a violation of a norm to to try to you know, you know retaliate for for things that Republicans have done. Um, you know, one of the things. Most of this conversation has been within the context of politics, but but you also suggest that this anger has moved beyond politics and, and it influences social polarization. Could talk um, uh, polarization, I should say. Talk about that if you would. Yeah, so I have another study with some really great colleagues, and we've looked at how political anger can affect um, the ways in which Americans behave in apolitical settings. And so what we found is that if we make Democrats and Republicans angry at each other, um, they tend to adopt some very interesting behaviors, uh, particularly behaviors that um, are, are not conducive to facilitating um, sort of a, a healthy society. So what we found is that when people are angry at people who support the other party, they're, they're less likely to do simple things like watch somebody's houseplant or their pets if their neighbor is out of town and their neighbor supports the other party. Um, so, you know, that's not great, but that's, that's, a, that's a relatively trivial thing. I don't think too many of us would lose sleep over something like that. But we found that political anger can cause people to take more consequential social actions as well. So we found that uh, when people are angry about politics, they're more likely to 
uh, avoid places that are populated by supporters of the other party. They're less willing to go on a date with the supporter of the other party or get a drink with them. Um, and then perhaps most consequential of all, we found that political anger can cause people to end relationships with friends who support the other party. Um, it can cause people to sort of cut back on the extent to which they discuss uh, really anything with family members who support the other party. Uh, and so this is really problematic because what it means is that uh, politics is, is increasingly becoming personal and people are unable to separate someone's political beliefs from who they are as a person. Do you see any way out of this phenomenon? And again, not a prediction, uh, but let, let's say for the sake of argument, uh, uh, Biden is victorious in a couple of weeks. Um, that anger is not going away. No, I, I don't think it is. Um, you know, I, I think Biden is certainly kind of a, a link to a more bipartisan past. But I think this, this problem of anger is, is more systematic. And so I'm not optimistic that any one person could sort of turn down the, the dial and make us just more civil and, and sort of calmer in our discourse. Um, so no, I mean, I, I, I am not optimistic, um, that, that anger will abate, uh, regardless of, of who wins this, uh, this coming November. You, know, you, you mentioned, um, Biden's, um, bipartisanship, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, internally that bipartisanship has been a, a, a criticism among, among uh, many Democrats, I'm, I'm thinking back, I'm dating myself now, but I'm thinking about um, the movie Godfather 2 when Frankie Five Angel says to Michael Corleone, let's hit him now while we got the muscle. And so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, that, 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 that sort of thinking will fuel the anger that you're concerned about. Yeah, this has always been, I think, one of the, the bigger worries for, for the Biden campaign is whether he can get turnout from the sort of liberal base of the Democratic Party. Because as you suggested, Biden is, is pretty centrist, he's pretty moderate, perhaps even conservative on some issues. Uh, and this is, you know, out of step with the, the more liberal wing of his party. Um, I think if you're a Democratic strategist or you work for the Biden campaign, you're probably encouraged that you've gotten some help from, you know, sort of liberal icons like Bernie Sanders. Um, but, it, but it certainly is the case that Biden needs to make sure that the most liberal parts of the base turn out to vote for him. Professor Stephen Webster, author of the book, American Rage, How Anger Shapes Our Politics. Thank you, sir, for joining me today on The Public Rally. Much appreciated. Much appreciate your insights. Thank you for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>